Welcome to another episode of the Austin Bar Association's Council of Firsts. I'm your host, Amanda Ariaga, president of the Austin Bar Association. This podcast is made possible by the Texas Bar Foundation. Today, we celebrate an attorney that has spent her entire career in public service. Betty Bayi Torres is the executive director of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. She has led many legal organizations at the state, local, and national level, including past president of the National Association of IOLTA Programs, past co-chair of the Board of Grant Makers Concerned with Immigrants and Refugees, past chair of the Hispanic Issues Section of the State Bar of Texas, and past co-chair of the American Bar Association's Working Group on Unaccompanied Minors. In 2020, she was appointed to three positions in the American Bar Association, chair to the ABA Commission on Hispanic Legal Rights and Responsibilities, special advisor to the ABA Commission on Immigration, and member of the ABA Center for Diversity and Inclusion. Betty has also been honored throughout her career at the state, national, and local level. She has received the Distinguished Lawyer Award from the Austin Bar Foundation, the Star of Justice Award from the Texas Access to Justice Commission, the Harold Kleinman Award from the Texas Access to Justice Foundation, the Chairs Award from the Hispanic Issue Section of the State Bar of Texas, the American Bar Association's Grassroots Advocacy Award, and the Innovations and Equal Justice Award from the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. I am honored to introduce Betty Bayi Torres. Have I embarrassed you enough? I am definitely embarrassed, Amanda. You shouldn't be embarrassed. You should be very proud of yourself. I'm so proud to know you. Um, And today we're going to talk about you and celebrate you. So I want to start off by asking, why did you want to be a lawyer? Well, if you kind of think of yourself and your life in a movie and you kind of go back, um, I think there's just a couple of points in time where Probably that was when the idea came. Uh, one of them, when I was very young, I uh, was um, a child who did not speak English when she went into school. I lived in Colorado. My dad was in the military. And within a week of uh, going into kindergarten, um, my parents were called in and um, they explained to them that I would need to go to special education classes that although I seemed like I was a really nice child and I smiled all the time, that no matter what instruction they gave me, I did not listen. And so my dad asked, I said, are, are you asking her in English or in Spanish? And he said, well, we're asking her in English. I said, well, she doesn't speak English. And so she's obviously doesn't understand. And he said, well, then um, regardless, she needs to go into special, special education classes. Uh, fortunately, my dad um, was a fighter and he was able to prevent that. But I, I look back now and think that that was probably a moment, it was just seared into my brain, that I probably started thinking about injustice. And I'm going to pair that up with another moment. Um, again, like I said, my dad was in the military, and he, we were stationed, or he was stationed in Maine. We were all living there. And um, when we would come home, which is Laredo, Texas, we had to drive through the south. And when we drove through the South, uh, we couldn't stop at many places. We couldn't stop to eat. We couldn't stop to use the restrooms. And at that moment, during those times, I didn't really understand what was happening, but I understood injustice. That much I understood. So I don't know that there was an aha moment I'm going to be a lawyer. I think it's just kind of permeated some, the injustices that you live through uh, during your life. And that's probably why I went. Sure. Are you still Spanish speaking today? 
I am Spanish speaking. My mother's from uh, Mexico and uh, she's a U.S. citizen now. And um, so I have a lot of family in Mexico uh, on the other side of the border, Nuevo Laredo. Uh, my dad retired in Laredo. And, um, but I don't speak it much anymore. I will say when I was practicing, almost all of my clients were monolingual Spanish speakers, mostly mm -hmm. victims of domestic violence. And so I am Spanish speaking and proud of it, very that, proud of it. That's wonderful. And it's interesting because it's a wonderful skill that now parents specifically send their kids to bilingual education schools because it's so much easier to learn a new language as soon as you can. So that's wonderful that you had that experience. And people now are paying good money to try to replicate that for their children. It's true. And I made a huge mistake. Lyra and I made a huge mistake because we did not do that for our kids. So even though we both were monolingual Spanish speakers until we went into school, our kids don't speak Spanish. And um, I really believed that they would just pick it up, that they would learn it in our home. And if I were to go back, I would have done, I would have done the same thing. I would pay good money. To, to have them immersed in it. Because in the end, about language, you really, it does require that immersion. And I wish I had understood that. There's still time. There's great novellas I can recommend <laughs> for your boys to watch. Good. And there's always <laughs> Selena songs. There's always Selena songs. That has taught me a lot of Spanish words. <laughs> so your entire career has been in public service. Mm -hmm. Your first job out of law school was staff attorney for Legal Aid of Central Texas. Why do you think it's so important to give back to the public? Um, I think it comes back to the earlier conversation about justice and what is justice and what does justice look like. And um, it is clear to me that we don't have justice in this country at so many levels. But just talking about um, being a lawyer, um, the, there's a recent study that uh, done by the Legal Services Corporation that shows that only 8% of low-income people legal needs are being met. That means 92% are not being met. That means we have no justice system for poor people because basically we're not meeting those legal needs. And so um, I've been very fortunate to be able to, um, to have a law degree that allows me to, to give in that way and to focus on issues that are important to me and access and justice are just kind of at the core of who I am. And so I, I think it's important for, for me to do that. And I also think it's important for me to um, have conversations like this. And um, for those who aren't aware of where we are in terms of our justice system. So it seems like you were born for the current position that you have, <laughs> executive director for the Texas Access to Justice Foundation, and you started there in 2001. So what issues do you think existed in 2001 that remain now that you're trying to address? You know, I um, when I first started, um, all of the legal needs studies said that we were only meeting 20% of the civil legal needs of poor Texans. And that was the figure and throughout the country, not just Texas. And so I've spent a lot of energy as I have my colleagues trying to figure out how do we meet those needs. And um, it was um, very disheartening 
uh, several about a decade ago, the foundation paid for another legal needs study and from UTSA, and that legal needs study showed that we were meeting 10% of the civil legal needs of poor Texans. And then the LSC study kind of really validates that, showing 8%. And so I, th- I think I, I'm, I've really been stunned of, I imagined a trajectory where we would increase right? We would be able to provide more services. And instead, I've watched where we are able to provide less and less services and the needs are not being met. And so um, I look back and go, boy, I wish our needs were just the same as they were back then. Instead, we're really on this uh, downward spiral, um, which again, I think reflects on um, the judicial system and access to it. How would changing the judicial system help combat this downward spiral? What's the change that we need to make sure that we have more access for low-income persons? I mean, there are, I mean, I really, so the judicial system was really, the way it's set up is, uh, it was really created by lawyers for lawyers. And it really isn't client-centric. I think we'd have to revisit the entire delivery system and the entire court system and look at um, what is the best way to ensure that people are able to access the judicial system. I mean, it is our courthouse. Um, As a public, it's our courthouse and we can't get into it. And so it really is going to take a revamping. So I wish I could say there was one solution. There isn't one solution. It really would take the will of the legal community, of the uh, courts. Um, and, and we see that will. We see that there's an understanding that we're failing. And so we're going to have to look at all of it and go, how do we make it easy for you to go get a divorce instead of your decree is 50 pages long, so you'll never be able to do your own divorce? What are the things that we can do to make it easy to access legal services? I mean, that seems like an easy project that you can figure out in a day or so. I'm not worried about you. (laughs) So throughout your legal career, you've been very active in bar associations at the state and national level, specifically on committees that focus on diversity, inclusion, immigration, and Hispanic legal rights. Um, I think I know the answer to this, but why have you chosen to give back to the community in that way? I mean, I think you go back to, you know, as your career progresses and you start evaluating um, where are the touch points, you really do see the intersectionality of justice and race. And you see it in so many ways. And I'm not just talking about the court system. I'm talking about justice in the as a big J justice. And so my focus has always been on access to justice. My clients have almost always been monolingual Spanish speakers or people with mental illness. And I look now and I think the population tends to be people of color. And so I decided I need to kind of bring that piece into um, into my work, and they just come, they just, you know, converge. Mm-hmm. They really do. What is, of all of the organizations that you're currently involved with, what um, 
What's the one that you're most currently passionate about that you're working with? All right, we're going to exclude the Texas Access to Justice Foundation because sure. obviously that's near and dear to my sure. heart. It's um, but um, I think the work I have done with uh, the State Bar Hispanic Issues Section and um, working with leaders throughout Texas, trying to you know lift up Hispanics, and it really dovetails really well with the work I'm doing with the as chair of the ABA's Hispanic Commission and trying to do the same thing nationally. So I kind of see them both as this kind of the same, one of them local, one of them in my backyard and right. one of them in kind of in a in a bigger picture. So I'm really those two right now are what I'm most passionate about. That's wonderful. Well, and the State Bar Hispanic Issues section has put on some of to me, the most fun events like <laughs> Lotteria. I think right. that was one of the most um, unique legal events because it's definitely a game that I played growing up at home. Absolutely. Uh, and so I told you, I confess to you that I borrowed your idea um, from my workplace when we were looking at giving out gifts to make um, a Lotteria game that explained the child welfare system mm -hmm. um, because it's so fun to learn when you have these fun cartoons and these fun pictures. Um, so I freely stole that from you. Well, did you also confess that you uh, have performed in some <laughs> of our Access to Justice and Hispanic Issues section? Well, you are Selena. Well, I do wonder, <laughs> maybe our audience would be interested to know how we officially met because it's kind of a fun story. Um, it was during the pandemic um, and I got a call from a lawyer, Claude DeClue, mm -hmm. um, and he said that you were looking for uh, performers for Justice Jam so that you could mm -hmm. raise money for access to justice. Um, and he asked if I could sing in Spanish. And I said, yes, I can. I mean, I can karaoke in Spanish, of course. <laughs> um, and he put us in touch with each other. And you were so excited about the idea of having a Hispanic person singing a song in Spanish and you kept explaining why that was so important that I finally felt bad and said, <laughs> Betty, do you know what I look like? Because <laughs> I understand I, I'm a very pale Hispanic. Uh, and you said, yeah, I know who you are. It's, no, it's true. And I, and I remember that um, because I was determined. Um, I, am, I am determined that anything I'm involved in is inclusive and um, so I was like, we are going to have a Spanish-speaking uh, singer in Justice Jam. I just didn't know who it would be. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about um, when you're determined to do the right thing is something like this, which is that we ended up meeting and then there was Loteria and then, you know, you just end up connecting with people. Um, so... I'm glad you did it. Thank you. Yes, I was honored to be a part of it. And then for our resulting friendship, mm -hmm. which has been so fun, um, and including you on this podcast. Um, typically, what we're talking about is the Austin Bar Association. But what I realized is I think part of this platform is to expose the audience to all of the different legal surface opportunities that there are. And so what you do, even though it's not the Austin Bar Association, that's not a limitation. It's great. I think part of what we need to do is make sure that we celebrate everybody that's serving in any organization and help make sure that our platforms help each other. So I am so happy that you are willing to do this because your work might not be classically talked about at the Austin Bar because we don't necessarily have 
um, a Hispanic issue section like the state bar does. Um, but I want to make sure that you are featured here in your home bar association as well. And so if I can do that, I think that's important for me to do for you as well. Well, well thank you, Amanda. And, you know, the Austin bar, if you if I look back, I, I when I was a young lawyer, I volunteered on various committees for the Austin Bar Association. And really, it's kind of where you, you start growing up, right? You start meeting people, you start connecting, you start understanding bar work. And it really was the foundation. Um, it has led me elsewhere, right? But that's what foundations are supposed to do. Uh, they're not supposed to be limiting. They are supposed to help you grow. And so I have a, um, I've continued to be a member of the Austin Bar Association because it's home. Mm-hmm. When all is said and done, it is home. Um, I'm very happy that I have been able to have my home and been able to grow and continue to go to, you know, to other areas, um, including, you know, in Austin, we have the Hispanic Bar Association as well, which does great work. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's wonderful um, to, you know, to characterize the Austin Bar as your home, but then we all graduate. <laughs> and we should graduate and we should move on. Um, and we always have home to come back to. But new leaders and new voices and new ideas will emerge. And that's only possible if the formers graduate <laughs> and true. allow for that space. Um, because that's something that I have noticed. You know, right now we've had many Austin Young Lawyer presidents in a row came to the Austin Bar Association. And so sometimes, you know, you might have created your pet project as president. But once you graduate, it is subject to change because the new people have new ideas um, and they're evolving and that's good. And no one should ever be concerned about that. We have to graduate and let the new leaders take over. Um, So that's great that that's part of what you have done is you're making space. And I assume with part of your mission, you are going to want to bring new leaders into the organizations that you're part of now because that's part of your character. Absolutely. And um, it's, you know, I've seen a lot of change uh, during my career and um, and change is good. I mean, change is good. And so I, I completely agree with everything you just uh, said. And, um, and I'm looking forward to see when you graduate, Amanda, what's next. Me too. (laughs) Who knows what that will be, but I'm going to call you for advice. (laughs) So to embarrass you again. Oh, stop. (laughs) One more time. I listed, I can do it again. Uh, I listed off every award. Well, not every award you've won, but every award that I said at the beginning. Um, You have won almost every single award that a lawyer could want to win at at the local, state, and national level. So most people would be tired. You do a lot of work and you always have. Uh, And some people would think like, I've been, I've gotten all of my accolades. I'm done. It's time to take a step back. But I don't feel like that's what you're going to do. So what is next for you? Okay. You got to stop embarrassing me. That's, that's one. I'm going to read them again. Stop. (laughs) Um, I, I'm really perturbed about this 8% number and this 92%. And that, um, and that we have failed. Um, I don't take it personally. I don't think I failed individually, but as a community, we are failing um, 
people in this country. So what's next for me is trying to be a part of solutions and um, be solution-based. What are the things that we can do to improve the lives of poor Texans? And um, I don't know the answer, right? And that's all right. But my job is to go seek answers. My job is to go figure out what new models, what new approaches are out there, what ideas. Um, and so there's more to come for sure. And I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I'm hoping that it looks like a, a change in the way we, we practice, in the way we provide services to low-income people, in the way the judicial system treats low-income people. So that's that's next for me. Betty, I think we need to give you a podcast so that you <laughs> can talk to experts around the state, around the country about how we solve this problem. I feel like we could get that done for you. There's I a would, spinoff. I would There's love that. There's a spinoff that. of would, this show for you. I would you. love that. I would love that. I, I'm looking for solution-based people, people who have bring in ideas. What do we do? How do we change things? Mm-hmm. We're going to work on that together. Thank you. Sure. So my last structured question mm-hmm. is what advice do you have to lawyers in the Austin community who want to get involved and don't know how? I mean, it's, it's, you hear it all the time and, and people who've been involved will give you this piece of advice. And the reason we all do it is because it's actually, it's really good advice is, um, start off with home base. Back to what I talked about. Start off with your local bar association and figure out where you fit in. When I started, I, I, um, I found two committees that I thought, this is something that I have an interest in. There will be something of interest for you. And then remember that there's specialty bars as well. So you, it's like if if for you, you go, the Austin bars are not exactly where I want to be. Well, look at some of the specialty bars and see if that works for you. But I think it starts with get involved and then find an area where you have a passion. If you have a passion, you will end up loving it. And then you will end up growing into, you know, finding other paths to meet that passion. So it's it's simple advice, but, you know, it's, I think it's just true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one is if you can get a mentor, um, get, get a mentor, talk, talk to people that you respect and, and ask them um, what they would advise you to do to get involved. Because, um, you know, they're, People enjoy being mentors, and they want to help you. And so it's a matter of, of asking for help. And most of us, I think that's challenge one is asking. And, but if you reach out, people will help you. Did you have a great mentor? I did, and I do. Um, but I don't, she didn't realize it at the time. And um, So Judge Laura Livingston was um, a legal aid lawyer. When I started at Legal Aid, and um, I had no idea then that she'd only been practicing two years, and <clears throat> so um, I think I was stunned when I, I eventually figured it out um, because within those two years, um, she had so much experience and so much wisdom already that um, she really could help pave the way, and she still does that for me. Um, we still talk regularly. I see her regularly. We'll be in D.C. next week together. And um, so a mentor can be a colleague 
of the same age. I mean, Laura and I are, you know, she's just a couple years older than I am, I guess. And so it, it could be someone more senior, but it doesn't have to be. It can be a colleague who just seems to have their act together. I think she would be thrilled to know that she's your mentor. <laughs> and I agree with you. I think that probably the best mentors are those that aren't necessarily formally established, but just who the people that you go to for advice, the people who um, you really value their opinion. And that could be any age, any profession. Um, what's probably harder is being paired up and saying, um, so-and-so, this is your mentor. Go to them for all of your problems now. Because that's not really the organic way that we get to know each other and do that. And that's true. And and I serve as a mentor um, in various capacities, whether at UT or through my work at Arrow. And um, I mean, I think there's something good about that. Mm -hmm. I do believe <clears throat> there's value in that. But what you're saying about it being organic, where you just kind of naturally go to someone because, you know, they really, um, they understand um, so I, 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 I'm with you on that one. Yes. Betty, would you like to chat some more about what the Texas Access to Justice Foundation does and why it's so important? I feel very fortunate to be the executive director of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. And so I could never have um, even begin to dream about this kind of organization. So just to tell you a little bit about it, it was created by the Supreme Court of Texas and the State Bar of Texas to fund civil legal aid. And so um, that that's the mission. And so when I first started my uh, job, I, as director, I knew, uh, I, I was immediate, I immediately said, I want us to have the very best program in this country. And so what I asked uh, my board chair is, would it be okay if I went to visit the best program in the country? And so I did. And I had a, what I took from that was a conversation with um, a mentor, uh, Lonnie Powers. And he said to me, Betty, you've got a choice to make. You can choose to be a funnel or a force. What is it you want to be? And it was that moment, it was, well, of course, a force. And so, um, and that's how we have really lived the foundation. So our job is not just to funnel money um, into legal aid. Our, our job is to really make systemic changes, to make changes of the delivery system, to make changes in legal aid programs um, so that we are making a, a difference. And um so we work really closely with the Supreme Court, with the Access to Justice Commission, with the legal aid providers to be able to accomplish that. And so I'm very proud uh, of the work that we do. We, we don't see um, money sent out as grants. We see them as investments, investments in the lives of poor people and improving the lives of poor people. And when you take that approach, it, it really... Um, it really, you know, kind of determines grant making. And um, as opposed to you're getting 10, you're getting 10. It's like, no, you're, this funding is going to make a difference. And how are you going to make a difference? And how are we going to make a difference? So I'm, I'm really proud. I'm really proud of the work. Yeah, that's wonderful. I've never heard this idea of be a funnel or a force, um, but it makes perfect sense. 
And I would agree that you are a force. <laughs> um, that's also, that would be our hashtag for this episode, I think, funnel or force. Um, because it makes a lot of sense. You have to do more than just collect the checks. You have to do something to make an impact for the community. Yeah, and and that's it. And so um, our board chair is Deborah, former Supreme Court Justice Deborah Hankinson, and um, she's kind of of the same ilk, right? And and um, we have an incredible board, and they're a thoughtful board, and they don't see themselves as coming in and just saying, "Here's you know, uh, sure, Betty." Check. We're going to do what you say. They are not rubber stamp. They are. They bring in all their experience and all their expertise, and we have, I mean, great conversations about change and how can we make changes in the delivery system through investments. And so, um, it is a. It's a team. One of the things that you continue uh, embarrassing me about is being recognized, and. W- what you will always hear me say is um, it is Team Texas um, because it is definitely not Betty Bay Torres. It is Team Texas. And that team is a, a team of, uh, of our staff, the team of our board, the commission, the court, the bar, local bar associations, legal aid programs. It is that entire team that is making a difference. And so I... I I go back to what I said. I'm just so proud to be in this position, and I'm so proud to be a part of Team Texas. Are you in a position to say whether you now have the best program in the country? All right. So, okay. I'm going to say that every day we strive for it and that we're at the top somewhere. But it, um, but my colleagues throughout the country would agree that there are areas where we really are probably the best and that there are areas where other programs are the best and we look to them and we look to learn from them. Um, but we're up there for sure. Well, that's wonderful. And it, though you're very humble about Team Texas, Team Texas is led by a person that is been part of at the helm of the Texas Access Justice the Texas Access to Justice Foundation for over 20 years. So you're a big part of Team Texas. I'm I I am definitely a part of Team Texas. And um I the I mean, I, so part of our earlier conversations have really been around what you know ch- being changing agents and um where do we go from here? And so there's the kind of the access to justice side, but the other side that um, that we have not made a lot of progress is on the diversity side. And right now, uh, well, not right now, when I was hired, I was the only Latina in the country um, to serve in this position. And that continued until Puerto Rico became an IOLTA program six years ago. Now there's two Latinas that had legal aid programs. Um, I mean, um, oh, no, got to go back. And now there are two Latinas that head IOLTA programs in this country. And so we have not made a lot of progress on, on the other side of the work that I'm doing. Um, so we, we, you know, so when I say, are we the best pro when you ask, 
are we the best program in the country? Like, well, I want to be. We're up there. Um, but we still have a lot of work to do, I think, on the diversity side in a state like Texas. When you go back to the theme of the podcast, because you were the first Latina to lead an IOLTA program. Right. So that is um, that is a huge deal and speaks to all of the story of why it's important to keep exploring these new diverse voices and making sure that there's representation everywhere. Because it might have been until Puerto Rico came on board that there was right. a Latina at the helm. So 20 years ago when I first started, I never, ever talked about being the first Latina anything. And I just went around doing it and um, being it. I mean, what else can you do? I'm a Latina. I have this job. I'm the only one. But as years have gone by, I have talked more and more with my colleagues about the fact that about how disappointing it is to me personally that I have not seen any growth um, in this country in terms of uh, leaderships for Latinas in, in our area. I'm not, you know, and um, part of it is, you know, uh, that old saying, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Part of it's that. But part of it is um, there's no benefit in silence of not just putting it out there that we are not, that we're failing at that, uh, assuming it's a goal for anybody. If we assume it's a goal to have a diverse leadership, then we're failing miserably. And uh, like I said, when I didn't say it then, but now I've reached the point. So it's just time to have those conversations and maybe the time was back then. Maybe back then I should have been saying, why am I the only Latina? Um, rather than kind of maybe being proud of being the only Latina. I moved from being proud to this is wrong. Well, it's interesting. I, I sort of feel the same way. Um, the reason that I decided it was important to talk about being the first Latina president of the Austin Bar is it seems strange we had the first Latina president of the state bar last year with Sylvia right. Berenda Firth. Um, and Austin, we love to talk in Austin about being diverse. And so looking at the numbers and seeing 14 female presidents and eight minority presidents seems odd. Um, and so I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if the solution is meant to be um, try to be more inclusive and ensure that everyone feels comfortable to join and to be in leadership positions at the Austin Bar, but it takes a long time to become the president. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I thought in opening this podcast to talking about different things and not just the Austin Bar, um, I think maybe our job now is to provide platforms for everybody else. There is an event that is happening Um the Well Summit, and it is the Travis uh, County mm -hmm. Women's Lawyers Association partnering with all of the other women lawyer-focused bar associations. And TCWLA, TCWLA has the infrastructure to put that on. And I'm so impressed that instead of being concerned that there might be competition within these women-focused bar associations, they all came together and said, no, our job is to lift each other up. Right. And that is something that is inspiring that the Austin Bar should be offering that kind of platform as well. Um, and so I am inviting 
some of those um, those founders of that event and those organizations to come on as well, because I think it's important to know it's not necessarily that every club is for every person, but they all should be celebrated. They all should. We should promote all of them so that folks can find where they fit in and where they want to be. I think it kind of goes back to, you know, a lot of conversations we have at the ABA Hispanic Commission deal with pipeline. It's like you have to have a pipeline. But then um, it takes so long to get through that pipeline anywhere, right? And you still have to do that work. You still have to do that work. But I am today surprised, um, even though I knew that, that you're the first Latina. I was talking to some colleagues in Houston recently, <clears throat> both of them former Houston bar presidents, both Latinos, and I believe they're the only two in the 100-plus year history of the Houston Bar Association. And, like, I knew it, but until I heard it, it just didn't really seep in. And so um, I'm proud of them and I'm proud of you that what you're trying to do is bring in other voices, bring people in, um, because that's the way we accomplish it. Um, I hope I have done that. I try to do that in, in the work that I do because it's really um, lifting up others is really the best way to lift yourself up, just quite frankly. And I mean that not professionally. I mean that personally, emotionally. Um, you just feel good when others are lifted up. And that, to me, my career in access to justice is about lifting up over 5 million Texans that don't have access to our court system. And um, and we would all be better if if they had access. I mean, every single one of us would be better. Well, you have been doing a great job of lifting up those 5 million Texans and everybody else you come into contact with, with all of these organizations. Um, when we met, we instantly clicked because I think we share that mutual passion for serving others. We're both public service people. Um, and we both know that we have a platform that we're supposed to use for some reason to celebrate others. So I'm so glad that you were here today with me. And I thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate you and I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.